women were very dependent on midwives and dependent on physicians on understanding the inner working of the body and the ancients. But generally speaking, women looked after themselves within their own community, it seems, and midwives uh, were very involved on the sexual side, obviously, and the birthing side and this kind of thing. So, can you remind me your your qualifications, basically, to talk about women's health? And remind me, because it's quite specific, I think. Yeah. So, my name's Leslie Smith. I'm the curator of Tutbury Castle in Staffordshire and have been for 24 years. Uh, I hold an MPhil in the history of medicine. I have a particular interest in childbirth and women's health in the mid of the century. So, 1550s to 1580s is, is my particular area of study, although, of course... I speak to others too. And I'm a fellow of Society of Antiquaries of Scotland um, and I hold an honorary degree for services to history in the community. Fab. Because I've got loads of questions. Because it really, it really this gets right down to um, what they, I suppose what people call now living history or, you know, like the real day-to-day -day mm -hmm. stuff. It's not the high-level mm -hmm. politicking or whatever. It's like, mm -hmm. what does a woman do when her period comes? Mm -hmm. So... Um, so I want to get into things like that, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll just, I'll just, should we just rattle or just ask yeah, me what you like? Rattle. Ask me what you like. Because one of the things I was thinking, it kind of, I suppose, overarches the whole of health, but I'm particularly thinking about women's health, is how much did they understand about their own bodies? The, the principle was actually still locked very much, very firmly into the ancient Greeks. And although a man called Serranus was starting to fall very much out of favour, uh, by the mid-16th century, um, he was one of the great Greek philosophers. We're still back on the island of Kos, and we're still looking at Galen as well, who's well after um, that 400 years BC arrangement with Hippocrates. But Galen sort of got hold of Hippocrates' idea and kind of smartened them up a bit, you know, tidied them up. Um, but people were still absolutely locked into that. And actually the idea of anybody saying that these great philosophers, these huge names in medicine, could be wrong, was nearly blasphemy. You know, it was a real fuss if you tried to do that. But there was no doubt um, that the Reformation brought some new thinking. Um, and also, without doubt, some people are starting to become natural scientists. Now, that's a very strange thing to say. When I say natural, I don't mean white magic or something like that. I'm talking about people who suddenly are starting to write down, rather than throw a handful of that in a pot that's seething, they're starting to say how much it should be. Um, and they're starting to count. And they're starting to give people instructions on how often in a day they should take it. And this kind of thing. So consequently, women were very much dependent, like the rest of society, on qualified physicians who would enable them to understand the principles of their body. And a lot of it would be wrong. Um, although Henry VIII had helped things enormously because um, in 1518, he opened the Royal College of Physicians. And you had to go on a roll. There weren't many of them, may I tell you. And there were plenty of other people working in the medical marketplace, which I'll refer to in a moment. But the Royal College of Physicians is there. And physicians dealt with inside. And the reason that's important is because surgeons dealt with outside and there were specialists. And the College of uh, Surgeons doesn't open till 1540. And to start with, it isn't the Royal College. 
it's actually the College of Surgeons because surgeons were viewed as artisans, talented artisans who worked under the instruction of a physician. So what I'm going to say to you now is that the medical marketplace, which is a phrase that's sort of come about in the 80s, I think, uh, is made up in this country. And we're absolutely not talking about Scotland to have a completely different system, a very largely different system like the legal system is you've got physicians at the absolute top of the tree. Now, they will have studied humanities for about five years before they went to medical school. I mean, people now think this is hilarious. They did, you know, astronomy, which was considered part, or rather I should say, I beg your pardon, astrology. They also did uh, things like um, uh, music, classical readings, this kind of arty stuff. Uh, but actually, there's quite a good argument for this because what it did was took the beast out of the man. Mm. It made them a more sophisticated, more thinking person and it dragged out some of the more violent strains that the unlearned might be involved with. But you could have got in, frankly, and people went to Oxford Commonly at 14 and 15, you know. I mean, people forget that. But they didn't study medicine there. They then one caught one of two tides that came every day to other countries in Europe where they studied medicine. Places like Salerno, which was the oldest, really fantastic medical school uh, on the North African cusp. Uh, they studied in uh, Montpellier, in Bologna. They studied in Rome and in Paris. Uh, the English university system for medicine was really quite a bit behind them. It had become a bit moribund, but then it would pick up again. Uh, and, of course, in time would become outstanding institutions and not that much time afterwards. But this is what people did. So you've got the physicians. They're flaming expensive and there aren't many of them. Uh, and then the next stage down, you've got, obviously, the surgeons who would become more and more uh, developed in their abilities and skills and also more expensive. It would be reflected in the bill. And then you've got uh, the licensed people. So there'd be midwives, people like that, who are midwives specifically by the bishops and had very interesting duties. So women would be exposed to those quite a bit. I'll come back to that in just a moment, if I may. Mm. Then after that, there are cunning women and men. Some of those could read and write. Some were literate. That's been denied for a while. But people are clicking. Some of them could. Um, and wedged between... Uh, these people is the apothecary because they jumped from one discipline you know to another who they supplied uh, some people would argue that the apothecary was next down from the surgeon um, and it's one idea although they dealt with a span of people dealing with medicine because people had to go and buy things from them if they weren't making it out the back so the cunning people means wise and that doesn't mean anything criminal particularly and there were these people existed uh, you've got um and then you've got kitchen magic. Um, and these are people who dealt with uh, sort of spells and things like that out the back. Some of these were very much involved uh, with the healing process. In other words, sometimes witches who would gather together. They wouldn't be called that, would they? I mean, like, do you want to be arrested? But that's effectively what they were doing. They were going off and getting traditional medicines out of the woods and things like that and mixing it up sometimes with charms and things for people to wear and this kind of thing. So that's a kind of very... Uh, not very intellectual approach in what uh, people did, but it gives you a principle of the ladder, if you like, the step ladder. Mm. Um, the first three stages and four stages uh, did very well. And the midwives, some of those did very well. Some of the wet nurses are paid a fantastic amount of money. They would be looked at, look at their children. You've got to see what their children are. Are they fat and pink? Is this woman clean? 
Yeah, is her diet good? And that's why they were paid so much, because mm. they needed to have a very good diet. So all these people were kind of influential in life as a whole. We should also consider that whoever the housewife is, they too obviously had their own medicines within a family and many of those wrote down little notes. So many of those are literate as well in, in a way that we don't expect. Henry VIII himself wrote down a whole raft of um, medical instructions for people with various situations of illness and you can still read those and they're fun, you know, they're fun. So women... Um, by the way, the, why are they fun? They're fun because they're full of all sorts of weird and wonderful things that could only be afforded by people with huge money. It was like a state, even your, even your medicine was a statement of power, you know. And there was a polypharmaceutical way that people put medicines together. And the poly, it tells you what's going on here. And sometimes there could be a hundred, literally, different ingredients to a medicine. And they would take it or the pills or whatever it was, tiny bits of it. And then the body would take what it wanted. It kind of had what it thought. It, oh, I spot, I'll have that. You know, kind of view, which was rather strange. So women were very dependent on midwives and dependent on physicians on understanding the inner working of the body and the ancients. But generally speaking, women looked after themselves within their own community, it seems, and midwives uh, were very involved on the sexual side, obviously, and the birthing side and this kind of thing. So you will find Dr John Hall, some people say he wasn't a doctor, but he was certainly practising as a very well-respected physician in Stratford, who is Shakespeare's son-in-law, talks in his handbook, which he never thought, I suspect, anyone would read, written in Latin, about what he'd done for various people. And this utterly charming, kind man who worries about women shows that the physicians were engaged in some of this. And in some cases, servants were paid for to go to him. Mm. Uh, on one occasion, he says he met a particular lady in Stratford who he had treated and she was carrying, quotes, her beautiful daughter in her arms. And she thanked me for the child and how well she was. It's, 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 I mean, we're meant to be objective historians and it's right and proper we should be. But occasionally you get an emotional note that will reach down four or five hundred years. And this man describing privately to himself this beautiful daughter and how this woman had thanked him for this child's life, presumably because he must have gone a long way to save hers in some way. So, yeah, understanding how the body worked is, is always something that's been interesting to people, not least of all because of the Old Testament, which told us that in the Garden of Eden, Men were in God's image. He was first. He was hot, strong, courageous. Say God's first choice is arguably that too. And women were second choice and wet and cold and lacking morality. And we still might say about an effeminate man, he's wet, a bit wet. And that's actually where this comes from. And consequently, women were viewed as lesser creatures than men and part of God's work to be that. And therefore the human body, it was understood, was or thought to be men inside out. That was women. So the vagina, the birth canal, was the penis that was still held inside. That the ovaries, you know, um, that they should really come down and fill the labia. There's room for the testicles. <laughs> and in a way, it's quite, quite interesting that because you can see a strange logic to this. 
Except people might say, well, how on earth did they know? Because although other countries were allowing dissection and things were done, and most of us have seen some fantastic books of the Italian uh, Renaissance with this kind of thing in, it wasn't really going on here for very much longer, you know, very much later, I beg your pardon. Um, so you'd see people in death. They weren't human anymore. If there was a flaying, I can't think of a woman being flayed, but if there was a flaying, I'll tell you, the amount of physicians and surgeons would turn up to watch this poor soul have his skin stripped from him and they could see the muscle principles underneath. And there are actually drawings of this, uh, which people can see how the body worked. They still got it wrong, mm. uh, a lot of it, the internal workings. Um, and then, you know, you have to sort of, if you can displace yourself for a moment from now, the abyss of time that we have to leap to go and look at our sisters in the face and ask them questions that actually a lot of women do want to know and a lot of men want to know, which is things like, how did you cope with periods? You, know? mm. you have this amazing beautiful costume uh, you won't wear knickers uh, because you were scared uh, that they may suffocate the eggs in your body or the child you may have conceived another good reason not to get into water very often as well and all these things I wonder if anybody listening to this can think of any portraits of women with the legs crossed, which you are able to do in these heavy gowns um, but it's not something people did they thought it was not necessarily very healthy and this idea of having no crutch in knickers and things like that went right on until the early 1900s, you know, in this country. The idea of air being able to go into the birth canal and all mm. of that kind of thing. So um, Serranus had told us um, that there are four male eggs on the right, like ping pong balls. And four on the left. And a spare chamber for hermaphrodites. Now that's really interesting to me, which tells me they knew exactly what they were and they're rare creatures now, mm. but they did know and there was an allowance for that. Uh, what happened to women who had 12 children with this, with this ration that they had within their bodies? So presumably we thought God or the Holy Spirit, who of course is extremely heavily involved in, in conception. And it's one of the reasons why the religious aspect of God's creation through the Holy Spirit is so very sensitive. You have to be extremely careful about laws, canon law, uh, related to this kind of thing. So I won't go wandering off the subject, but what I will say is periods, we understood. When I say we, I'm talking about mid-1500s, early 1500s, sometimes a little earlier, knew very well that if you didn't bleed, you didn't conceive. And we called it a moon flux because all the tides on earth of God's will in the heavens pulled all fluids, you know, all these things, this tide, this eternal tide of man. And consequently, we, once a month when the moon was, uh, we would have our period. And we also called it flowers. The flowers are upon you, woman, get you into the truckle bed. You were unclean, in other words, get, get into the truckle bed. I don't suppose that was said very often. I've seen some marvellous pictures of women of the period, contemporary drawings, really telling off their husbands violently. <laughs> so actually some of these women really stood up to things. They didn't have to necessarily be rich or uh, high class to do that. So there we are. We have this period coming. Now what do we do? Because these gowns are so valuable. Well, um, we use cloth turned over and sewn like they did in the Second World War. 
because you know there were other things to put on the ships then than sanitary towels this kind of thing and it was put on a little leather belt it's understood and you pulled it through like a small nappy if you like and then that could be put in salt water and boiled with a soft soap or something like that and then put on the line or hedges as it actually was most of the time now that's really interesting because that's what they did in the war as well mm. you know um, so these, these, if you like, sanitary towels of their day, their place, but hardly anybody could afford cloth for that reason. I mean, people left their next door neighbours, their hoses. Imagine leaving people your tights. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> seem feasible, but they did look at the Essex wills. There's an enormous number of them that tell us a huge amount about real life at that time. Um, and what they left their guests, you know, uh, 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 who had been to their house, who were close friends, what they left their relatives, you know, all of these things are fascinating. So, OK, we have that. What we also have is a great deal of illness related to the womb uh, because of hygiene, uh, because of any uh, poor diet. Mm. I mean, one of the problems with wearing these heavier gowns is that it's very difficult to pass water. So we had piss pots that were held for us and that was used and we just got on with it. I think it's called There's No Choice. But you might be inclined to hang on a bit. So I don't think we drank nearly enough fluid uh, anyway and diet was a bit here and there. Uh, of course, vitamin D is an issue to do with vitamin C and blood flow and all these things. And vitamin D was, we can imagine how difficult that was. You're completely covered head to toe and often had makeup on and wigs on, you know. Where was the moment mm. where your body could start absorbing vitamin D and, uh, and at that point, of course, a conversion to vitamin C? So that's that. So we have this pads, but I don't think we can talk about those very often or expecting everybody to be able to do this. So um, I did some research on this myself. I found tampons uh, inside mummy's Egyptian mummies rolled up that white linen, cream linen they wore pleated. Most of us listen to this will think about that. And actually there's evidence of tampons in the medieval period too. In fact, in the 1200s and what have you, if you look at Trotula, uh, which was a fantastic book produced at Salerno, uh, many people believe that this professor of gynaecology was a woman evidence there's much arguing about that i'm delighted to tell you i'm not of that period but i've read the trotula and here you've got for a, a prolapse womb or yeah something like that to use a form of tampon pad it in and certainly that kind of thing might be considered but i can't prove that you see this isn't because this is private it's not particularly because of that it's not the sort of thing people necessarily wrote about you see i mean that's one of the difficulties whorehouses are useful because they're businesses and when it's a business, uh, you can look up the accounts a bit or find out a bit more about them or when the laws are breached. So where you go and research these type of things is can be, I think the euphemism these days is challenging, but the ecclesiastical courts are very helpful and doctor's notebooks, of course, are absolutely pure gold when you're looking for these things. So we have these women and they talk about, do they have a heavy flux? Will their flux not stop of blood? We tend to use flux as an idea for diarrhoea, which was used for that, but it just really means a flow. Of course, that area is called the womb. And then confusingly, you can read medical books of the day and find they talk about men complaining about pain in their womb. Um, and that's because that can also describe the lower part of the gut. 
And sometimes you'll find the womb is specifically called the mother. We thought that the womb was alive, a little living creature. I mean, not like a dog, but you know, a little sort of did its own thing a bit. Whether they thought this was the working of the Holy, Spirit's, Holy Spirit, I don't know. All I can say is that we thought that the womb could get big. Well, of course, there's a child in it, mm. get small. That used to wander around. I don't know what they thought it was doing. <laughs> um, and then the other thing is that it could dip down towards sweet smells. So if you've got perfume cloth or perfume of smoke, something like that, if you stand over that, that it would pull the womb down and therefore be much more easy to conceive. And foul smells will make it run away. Well, of course, it's still done with Muslim women in North Africa. You buy plastic stalls that have got no middle in them and the scented wood is used. And that's a part of the cleansing ritual um, after having menstruated. So that's still going on, still by the stalls, still by the wood and all that, the principle. So keeping your womb healthy, we knew, was important. But there was another thing. We thought it could be really distressing if it went wrong, for example, that the womb could go into the throat and choke you. Not to death. But there is something called hysterical throat, and it still is. Uh, hyster, of course, womb. It was believed that the womb became very thin if you became very distressed. Now, a lot of people listening to this will know that there are times in your life, if you're unlucky enough to experience this, where you become so distressed you feel you're getting choking fits when you try to eat, when you try to... And that was thought to be the womb on the move. Um... So women understood there was a womb and we thought it was alive and part of the great plan. That, that's a very convenient get-out clause for anybody not very sure about what the hell's going on. Um, and we also believe that men made semen in the brain. There's quite a large group who thought that. Now, these are not kind of old wives' tales or these, these are proper thinking people. You can see the logic running through. Yeah, you can. Yes. You see, Philippa, you, you understand... Um, the period and the way that people lived really well. I don't mean that sound patronising. You do, you have a sense of it. And I think that sense is crucial if you want to study the period. You've got to be able to think, well, what about this? What about this? So we have the periods coming. Um, I have actually had made some menstrual harnesses out of nettle fibre, which in them was fagin and moss. I give a complete lecture about that experience. Um, and very often I will try these things myself. Um, and that is because it gives you a sense of proper sense of the comfort levels and did it work? And then I have it tested in professional medical laboratories for research purposes. So I don't just sort of have a go <laughs> and then write, oh, that was all right. You know, we, we take it, just, you know, I, I take it a lot further. And the idea of a woman wanting to conceive a boy and the pressure she would be under. Ask Henry VIII, mm. ask Anne Boleyn, you know, the pressure of these people to have a boy for the reasons I've already explained, that they're the great ones there in God's image and all that. Women were fine and women were loved and daughters were loved, but boys better. Uh, so, you see, if a woman kept having girls, one of the suggestions medically was that she therefore got too wet and cold during intercourse. So the recommended method is lots of red meat, uh, spices, 
get ready to lay under a hot star. Uh, be careful you don't have a wet one, uh, like Aquarius, you know, when I say star, I'm in constellation. And all of that kind of thing. And when the big moment comes, having had lots of laid off fish, laid off chicken, laid off milk, laid off lettuce. I can't have lettuce. And all that kind of thing. That kind of its property of this food uh, is, is wet and cold. So you have to be very careful about that. And then you have intercourse on a particular night in front of a roaring fire or an afternoon. And curtains or the or, you know these great drape things they had and shutters and what have you were closed and you both wore a woolly hat uh, which is a bit hilarious really i have seen a picture of this it looked like ski sunday and people looking slightly bewildered and that of course is to keep the sperm warm because it's in its head because it's in its head and during intercourse they became so inflamed a man They became so utterly inflamed that while they were having intercourse, their blood turned to white foam like sort of cappuccino and shot into the brain. So the blood made the sperm and then it went into the brain. It didn't actually tell you what it did when it got there. It sort of wandered around a bit, gathering spirits, one person suggested. And another great thinker suggested that the brain actually was sperm. Um, it then went down a vein at the back of your head into your testicles for later. Uh, society had spotted that when a man gets a bit older, they can descend substantially, particularly by by the change of temperature. So there were knickers for men, which happily are called gouliers. And they were um, just like we'd imagine, just like shorts, you know, of linen, except at the front was a very clever little pocket, which men could put their tackle in and then tie it up in such a way that they were supported. Rather a better design than some of the... Um, sterility causing tight knickers of the 1970s and 80s so actually these are rather clever there's another thing which is extremely crucial about this business which is that it was believed that a woman would not because she's a man in reverse a woman would not conceive unless she had an orgasm now that's really important for all sorts of reasons so therefore a man must pleasure a woman and then she would pop out one of her eggs which I described earlier. And then his sperm would join and there would be a creation. Now, the reason this is absolutely crucial is, as I saw in a number of cases that I've researched, what happened to the women who conceived following rape. Mm. There's one case I can think of where the woman brilliantly realising, you know, she would have had to have orgasm to have this. She would, it's terrible terrible dilemma this woman brilliantly let's say women were thick um said that this man had used witchcraft that's another damning point to turn himself into her husband now those people who know the story of king arthur uther pendragon desiring yagrain of cornwall and therefore uther was turned into um, the Duke of Cornwall, so that he could go and make love to Yagrain, who believed it was her husband. And that, you know, this is a way of, this is another decency get out of hell card going on here, but exactly the same principles would have applied. Some uh, midwives perform tasks that are exceptionally, are you sure? <laughs> For example, 
they did some very moving things like it was their responsibility to sit with a woman who had a dead child, their responsibility to take the child and decently dispose of it, quotes, in such a way that animals may not reveal it, mm. and then come and sit and hold her hand for days and encourage her to try again. Very sweet. Encourage her to try again. And so this kind of support structure came from midwives, but it went a little further than some people might expect. For example, if a widow was having great difficulty with hysteria and these things, then her womb was locked off because she'd been widowed and was no longer having intercourse. Uh, so the recommended method was that a midwife would attend and put oil of lilies and roses on two fingers, insert them in the woman and pull them in and out very fast. And that would release the air that was locked in the womb. And, of course, she felt much better. Now, when you, <laughs> when you read this, you think, is this naive? What's going on? But actually, no, it's a way, I think, of course, they knew it was replicating intercourse, but by doing that, it was releasing. See, masturbation uh, was considered not entirely appropriate and certainly wasn't appropriate because it was a waste of the seed. Can you hear what it's saying? Waste of the seed. Is that for men and women? For, well, women masturbating doesn't seem to have been something people really thought about particularly, despite no. what I've just described. But for men particularly, because it would make them weak, uh, their back would become bent over uh, and they would have very poor eyesight. Now, that carried on to a lot of people listening to this Great Grandmother's Day, that belief, you know, of it. The eyesight thing. Yeah, I mean, it's just, absolutely, it's bad for your eyes and all that kind of stuff. And by the way, for those listening who wear glasses, sorry. Uh, but I should also point out that uh, Henry VIII had a lots of glasses. So women performed that task for each other. And they probably talked about contraception and that sort of thing too. Anal intercourse was... I think more widely practiced than people realise between husband and wife. But they were called the back door. Um, but I should point out that it was illegal and it remained illegal in this country between a man and a woman, I think to the 1970s, if I've heard right, mm. which sounds incredible, but true. There were also limits on the days that a woman may have intercourse with her husband. Even if it's a husband. Now, this is really annoying when you read it uh, because you realise that the church is now absolutely fed up by the fact that, you see, marriage was not a sacrament till 1446. The Council of Florence sat for 15 years and at the end of that, debating whether marriage should be a sacrament. But the smear of original sin had kind of stopped that happening for a very long time. And they went, no, 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 so, I mean, you know, marriage and sex is desirous of God and man which is fine. Um, so women expected to get married and preferably have a son. We've talked about that briefly. But they married rather later than people imagine uh, in the middle of Elizabeth's time, particularly when there was a great deal of peace and people were able to kind of have their men home and they weren't off slaughtering each other in foreign shores. Um, so she... Uh, encouraged, obviously, families and that sort of thing. And if you imagine that a woman had to have an orgasm for this to take place, there were some other interesting things that arrived. Uh, for example, there was a pornographer who bought out a book called Modi, as in Positions, who was, of course, an Italian. And this pornographer, they said, no, you can't produce that here, you can't bring that here with its filthy pictures. And he went, but it's the interest of mankind. Pornographers are crafty. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were some wonderful pictures, black and white drawings, which are prints, 
of couples having intercourse from various angles. But the reason why this is entertaining at many levels is because the uh, the one that I've seen, uh, which is in a leading institution in London, has had the rude bits chopped off at some point in the Victorian period, boulderization. Yes. So when you see the pictures, you do have to sort of wonder what they're doing. You have to have a, give it a bit of a guess, really. And they look astonished at various angles. There are some in existence of Modi, but not many. I understand there's one in the Vatican, uh, because the Vatican Library is a very wonderful um, I mean, incredible source of, of work, you know, and some of it is is simply breathtaking that they have. So there was that, you see, um, and there was prostitution as well, of course. But Henry VIII put a bit of a stop to that because at one point he got fed up of syphilis that had started to arrive and was killing people in vast numbers. So he went, right, blow this and closed all the whorehouses. And they didn't reopen until we get to Edward VI. And in a way, that was a kind of public health public health are very interesting there's not many of those that hit the nation as a whole so women were aware who they were they married a, a little bit earlier the, uh, later than you expect beg your pardon 23 24 uh, there were exceptions we know that Shakespeare married young but there was a child on the way and men a common age you sit 26 for men it's all very much later than people have imagined there's some evidence of when women finished their uh, having menses is another word for menstruation. And and we've certainly got Catherine of Aragon, who'd gone through hers by the age of 38. But the lifespan was shorter for a lot of people. Not all. I mean, that's always very exaggerated as well. I found plenty of people alive and kicking in the 80s and 90s if they lived in reasonably good clean areas with sweet water. You know, people could live longer. So you have got that kind of thing to think about. And... How women reacted to menopausal distress, I can't help with that much, except to say that burning lavender was one way of calming women generally. And also massaging the reins of the back, which are, of course, muscles across the back and tendons. You know, it's quite nice to have a massage. It's relaxed. They understood that as well. So we were, you can hear from what I'm saying, we're trying to grope our way towards a truth. And we have these support structures in place. I mean, a woman couldn't, that's a different talk for you. A woman couldn't give birth without half the village in. And in fact, at one point under James, who, as you know, followed Elizabeth, uh, it became illegal to give birth privately. Illegal. Because there were so many people considered in the business of stealing the babies or killing the babies or, you know, infanticide or swapping the babies and all that. But then again, James, as we all know, with his interest in witchcraft, had some particularly yeah. <laughs> unusual approaches to life. Um, might say, really, what about the witches then? Well, 20% of witches were men. Quite a lot were middle class as well. So you need to kind of put away in a tidy drawer with a label on, not necessarily. We've caught up with all sorts of ideas about things, and that's where research comes in. And sometimes some of my own research I've had to deal with and say, actually, there's further evidence about this that supports another view. And that's what you're meant to do. Move on, get it right as best we can. But women lived and loved and had their babies. We have great passions. Uh, and some of these things that are so interesting, you'll find in the Lyle letters. And she was, Honor Lyle was the deputy governor of Calais' wife, Honor. And she's quite a battle axe, to say the least. And there's a great number of private letters between uh, 
her or a steward writes for her, you know, backwards and forwards. I mean thousands and thousands of letters that absolutely show. I mean, there's one. The steward is particularly lovely, this man. I think about him often. And it, it, Lady Lyle's expecting another child, and he's thrilled. I think she's fairly mature age. He's thrilled for her sake, her steward, and says, um, well, we must uh, make her comfortable. And then, obviously, the child dies or miscarried. Because then, because he's got a little mink hat for it organised and a kind of cradle organised. And he says, right, quickly get rid of all this stuff, don't let it be around. And those kind of absolutely now sensitivities mm. that we would demonstrate, interesting, it translates into that. I don't know why people are surprised human beings are <laughs> human. You know, oh, are they human? That's a bit of a surprise. But 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 the religious thing is actually very much more important than people realise. So I'm going to go back to that briefly now and say that because the church got terribly involved in in marriage by saying, oh, yes, it's a sacrament, and then going, but that's a bit of a nuisance, isn't it? Because priests got an extra one, you know. So we'll try and get keep this in control. Uh, so there came quite strong rules about when you should have sex with your own husband. So you can't have it on a Friday, you can't have it on a Sunday. You can't have it for the whole of Advent. I mean, that's <laughs> the whole of Lent. Uh, you can't have it if either of you are drunk. Not very reasonable. You shouldn't have it on all fours or stirring the soup or standing up or anything else. That's a deliberate contraception because the sperm falls from the body. You must lie on your back. You must look at your husband, think of him, don't think of other people. The child might come out looking like someone else, which, of course, could have its uses in some <laughs> relationships. So this domination of our how we expressed our love to our partner is really quite irritating when you read it. But then there's other questions that spring to mind. And I went and spoke to an expert in canon law. I said, hold on a minute. Uh, what a, you know, I know, for example, that it's against the rules for a woman to refuse a man now grandmothers would have told people listening to this oh, or your mother you mustn't refuse your husband never refuse your husband but actually the rule was that the man couldn't refuse the woman either and the, that's quite a bit more tricky with the man hmm. but actually the reason that said is it could thrust that person into mortal sin right. because they'll go off and sin with someone else their desire overwhelms them so consequently, that was what that was about. And then I said, which is the most punishable or disapproved or have to receive some sort of forgiveness for conceiving a child in Lent? Hmm. Not meant to have it in Lent. Or um, refusing a husband. And this canon law bloke didn't look pleased with the question. <laughs> I thought about it, had a think. And then came back and said, oh, actually, confidently, without, it, without doubt, it's refusing your husband because that's a mortal sin. Mm. I mean, not your mortal sin, but you're risking mortal sin that your husband will commit. And then, of course, you're separated. If he dies in that condition, he's in hell forever. Henry VIII had banned purgatory, you know. That was one of his teachings, purgatory. And if I was Henry VIII, I'd have banned purgatory mm. as well. <laughs> Another 400 years to go, Your Grace. So... Um, you can hear that the church is influenced, midwives are an influence, physicians sometimes in, in the way that I've described were involved too, apothecaries, people probably went to apothecaries and bought things from them. 
uh, I know for for a fact um, that being able to buy something for an abortion was possible. Mm. Um, but what you would say is, I just haven't got my moon flux. My flowers have not been upon me some months. Then the the apothecary has to say legally, you're positive you're not with child. Oh, no, 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 no. Right. And then they've done their job and we've all kind of ticked the box, if you like. Mm. But you could definitely get those. Some of them are pretty dangerous as well. Um, lots of societies have had arrangements, including physical ones, which can often end in hemorrhage and death. You know, So people did live in love. They coped with their periods rather better than many of us think. The sphagnum moss in the, you'd be pleased to hear, inside the nettle fibre menstruation harness that was a mouthful to say <laughs> it's successful it's successful you see the harness itself lasts ages it's tough mm. not prickly i got an expert up on nettles and uh, this lady and i between us and she looked something from the hobbit between us made this fiber because sometimes those listening to this you do occasionally have to try these things yeah to see if you can at least make a personally informed idea about how this might work. There's other contraception too. That's another talk. I've discovered some for myself. But all the time people tiptoeing around syphilis at this point. Henry VIII had done this job of shutting it, then it reopened. It hadn't really got enough of a grip. And I have found no evidence Henry VIII had syphilis. If somebody else listening to this has got actually documented evidence, let me have a look at it. As yet, I haven't got it. It appears to be one of those myths. Yeah, it's six fingers on Anne Boleyn, the most, mm. the most observed woman in the whole of Europe at the time, and it doesn't appear in anything else. So I feel this great sense of relief in some ways that there were some wonderful support structures in place for women, and some of these midwives were clearly lovely. I'd just like to add one other thing. There was a midwife called it's called Sharp, Mrs. Sharp, which I suppose was a rather unfortunate name mm. for a midwife. Mm. Um, and she was completely literate, wrote a book on her experiences uh, in the late 1600s about what she had done and seen. And she says she saw the eggs of a woman in her when she was dead. But, of course, what she was seeing was ovarian cysts, which are extremely common. Right. Um, and, you know, the description she gives is almost certainly that. So people still hang around with this idea, you know. Um, I found some research in, in a particularly interesting book. Now, just to add to this, which will be a relief for those people looking to research this, Henry VIII brought in at least three rafts of legislation after the Reformation that stopped the importation of foreign books. Or as some people would say, in foreign, uh, which of course, was a way of trying to control anything being slipped in the pages from Rome, trying to rouse people up, you know, get them, get them, to get them go out and cause trouble upon the streets. So that, that was the point, really, about doing that. But he very much viewed himself as a Catholic, and although he banned rosaries um, and purgatories, we've already said, and, of course, pilgrimage, does it matter? Well, you are joking. When the pilgrimage stopped, it absolutely wrecked huge numbers of economies in England because yeah. people every summer were marching about, buying drinks at people's houses, walking sticks, holy badges. It was a terribly important function. That would have caused the most dreadful distress that would have done, in, in particularly in rural communities when they were linked uh, 
places like St Winifred's Well or something like that, that would be really bad news, and all these other places. So this idea about Henry VIII being a Catholic is something people can't really come to terms with, uh, but they should, because he lived and died a Catholic. And Anne Boleyn was no convert. She died a Catholic too. The fact that she wasn't clutching a rosary is nothing to do with it. So that means that all the comforts with the exception of the piggy's bones or all these kind of things, during childbirth uh, were not quite so high necessarily in number, but the gospel would be with them probably. And they may well have readings while they're shut away from public view, high-born women for 30 days before the birthing, in this marvellous phrase, the tabernacle of women's secrets. They might well have stories to do with the nativity and things like that read to them, be of good cheer, be of good comfort for. Did you know. ordinary women... Um, sort of take to their bed before as birth was approaching well, or I have to say who knows yeah. uh, if people there was quite an aspirational group who under Elizabeth were well off and the husbands at home so they were always showing off to the neighbours you know <clears throat> now they may well go in for a couple of weeks or maybe a full month to make the point and then when the baby was coming there would be a birth was imminent there would be a stargazer who would arrive in a cloak covered in stars and moons who would then go to the roof of the house if it was grand enough or somewhere and draw up charts while this was going on, you see. So these were the bee's knees if you had that arriving at your house. But most ordinary women, you know, the very poor would just birth in the fields or just come stagger back. But what is really lovely, and I love this, is it was thought that if a woman was sort of classy if you like and beautiful and classically female and blue-eyed and blonde-haired and fair-skinned and didn't do any work that she would have a terribly difficult birth it would be very painful for her but a woman with wild red hair of the Celtic background strong who worked in the fields would have an easy birth because they were ugly but it depends I mean ugly but it depends what you mean by ugly. The feminine traits, in the way I describe, fair skin, blue eye, drifting about in a shift. Sound like an angel. Yes, absolutely. Um, actually, this would be true because the chances are that the, the muscles in the lower abdomen stuff of a woman working toughly in the field and strong and able to cope with things would work really rather better than one of those. So mm. it depends what you mean by ugly. So I feel when I look at the landscape of this period that there's a great deal of hope in there for all of us that there was some wonderful parts of life, you know. And there's humorous things written. I mean, lots of humorous things. I found a, a particular uh, lady who was a prostitute. Uh, by the way, the very rough ones were doxies living in the ditches. Um, these prostitutes, and it says, you know, she hadn't had a customer for three days, so charged for a virgin. Uh, like she cooled off a bit and tightened up a bit, but it might have been a joke. I mean, you know, we, did, we had a sense of humour. What Shakespeare? We can't assume everything written down was no, written down with I mean, sorry, it was, yeah, seriousness. Absolutely, and, and so you can have a bit of that. Sorry, I'd rather talked a lot. I had more no, questions, fascinating. please. Fascinating. Well, you, you, you probably covered quite a lot. So, Because one of my thoughts was, I know we had the physicians and the, and the, and the, the, the teachings of... Um, Serranus, and, yes, yes that's right, Galen and all that. But I maybe this is an over-romantic view, but I wonder whether people are just more in tune with their bodies 
not necessarily in a way that they could explain it to you or write it down, but they were more in tune with their bodies than we are today in that they're, I don't know, they're more in nature, they're not distracted by technology. Um, you know, I'm in my mid-40s and my period still surprises me. It's like, <laughs> um, yeah, I just wonder if, if they kind of may have had a more innate understanding of what was going on than... I think it's a really good point. And I think it's a point we think about. What they did have, they didn't have science, but they had empiric medicine. So they observed. Mm. It's an instinct, really. You know, sometimes people say, I don't care what the doctor says. They're always pleased to hear that, doctors. Don't care what the doctor says. There's something wrong with this child. And that instinct's there. It is true to say we were much more aware of ourselves, I think, because life was a bit more dangerous, to mm. say the least. So it's true, all this distraction all the time, we're bombed with phones and televisions and noise and driving around, doing all this. These people had a great sense of the rhythm of life, I think, in a way that we probably lost because we're almost divorced from our bodies now. And these people were very aware. Uh, the description of childbirth of the time says, like green apples. In other words, acute diarrhea, you see, painful. Mm. gripping colic well it is now i mean lower back pain this sort of thing and they were given uh, if they were well off enough they'd have perhaps hippocrates this sickly sweet drink and you have enough of that you're not really very bothered about anything really so there's that um but women did die the babies did die caesars are not common even though we call it a caesar oh it's julius caesar that doesn't mean they were in a constant state of practice mm. they were very rare what did women do for pain relief then? Um, drink, yeah, alcohol and that sort of thing. And massage, as I've told you, heat, mm. uh, cold, <coughs> excuse me, sometimes with muscles. It's a bit vague. You see, women can't write down their experiences very often. I mean, I, throughout this talk, I've said some women were illiterate, some literate rather, some definitely were literate, but it wasn't common. Mm. You but know, also, you, how many of us write down... Our, oh, uh, I mean, diaries aren't yeah. kept anymore. I mean, we no. would have known a lot about it, but diaries aren't kept. Well, they are kept, but it's extremely unusual. People with a hat, you know, we're going to lose us if we're not careful, folks, listening to this. Use your handwriting. Mm. You know, these typewriters or these computers that are burping out this information, they all look the same. It gives you some sense of we the person. We things via image now, as if that captures the entire detail of the situation yeah well of course of course and it doesn't and and a lot of that's been fiddled with anyway but mm. there's a purity about these people and their support the holy spirit i'm going to go back to the religious side of it again i don't think you, i don't think we have a grip on how important it is i mean some people are more pious than others for obvious reasons um and you know you do find that as well but they were very superstitious people you know largely and very much more frightened of saints than demons because the saint is on the right hand of god if they fall out with them we are for it so the, i mean you know it was kind of a bit wary of everything that was going on but still saying that the holy spirit doesn't exist is the unforgivable sin do you hear that mm. in a sea of forgiveness the unforgivable sin so the idea of messing with the Holy Spirit was, you know, in other words, being drunk, you know, 
But I'm, I know people masturbated. I know people had anal intercourse, although it was illegal. And by the way, I'll tell you why it's illegal, because of witchcraft, particularly. Henry VIII was obsessed about this, um, because part of the black mass is to go backwards, everything backwards, a backward dance. So you're going backwards, the cross is upside down. I'm sorry if this deeply offends British people hearing this, but this is how it was. Sometimes they would, they would get hold of the host itself from a mass that they'd kept, a piece of the bread, and do something obscene with that. It was all this kind of revolting stuff on the, on the go. Um, but as well as that, instead of giving each other the sign of peace, the devil would appear and you kiss, quote, the devil's arse. So arse and hell all associated. All associated yeah. uh. And those listening to me now with you, Philippa, I think are probably getting a sense of how huge this subject is. Mm. I've not talked about gay sex. I've not. By the way, paedophilia was not common. Let's get away from that. We didn't need a church to tell us it was wrong. And at one point, prostitutes had to remove pubic hair under Edward VI to prove they didn't have the blisters of syphilis and that's um they were not it was not people were slightly repelled by this thing which might have been the child imagery mm. so there was a roaring trade in pubic wigs which were more fashionable i know god bless the merchant class who made responsible <laughs> for making no end of things so i have a separate talk on childbirth a separate talk in more detail on contraception uh, and sexual behavior but there's so much good that comes out of human dignity out of these situations despite Shakespeare describing sexual intercourse as the two-backed beast uh, <laughs> which he does um, and in court the legal term for intercourse was did you occupy this woman sort of moved in which I love <laughs> the rural illegitimacy rate by the way was under four percent Really? That's amazing, isn't it? So people did. You see, we had the ecclesiastical courts, church courts. We had the criminal courts, just like us. We had the civil courts, just like us. And then there was God's court. And there the recording angel was recording your actions for good and for bad. And at the end, you would be judged. And they thought, ooh, mm. I might get spotted doing this. That's why it became such a huge issue, you see. And why... Uh, people were very wary about behaviour. People still terribly badly behaved. Of course they were. And there were criminals out there and all sorts of weird and wonderful things going on. But generally, people wanted to be married. They wanted a good marriage. They wanted what we want, which is called be happy. Mm. Stability. Stability, happy, security. Mm. I can think of one woman a, a little later than the Tudor period who gave birth at 38 and four months to 24 children. She was dead at 38 and four months. And so she must have been in a constant state of pregnancy. She must have had a wet nurse because otherwise amnuria would have helped. Um, all of these things, uh, you know, for some people, this was it, wasn't it? Imagine how Henry VIII would have loved her, you know, this mm -hmm. great stream of children. And, and fecundity was a big deal. Uh, and the outward invisible side of fecundity, you know, like some women had in the, Tudor, in the Elizabethan period had their nipples pierced with pearls. So they look like milk falling from the breast. All these things. It's wonderful, really. And women and men would go to be breastfed from a wet nurse if they had particular illnesses. 
I mean, there's a logic behind that yeah, that yeah, they wouldn't yeah, have understood with the immunity is. that comes yeah, yeah. through. Uh, I mean, we, whether we saw, you know, it, if you have a child that's, say, 10 weeks prem now, your milk is perfect for a 10-week prem child. Mm. It would have made it richer and heavier with fats and just marvellous. Your body would have just gone, right, that's the type of milkshake we need for this child. Um, and so they, I think they may have recognised that the milk was richer, maybe darker in colour, I don't know, but... Styes. If you had a sty, you would go to a wet nurse and she'd squirt milk in your eye mm. to help clear it up. That's actually stood advice if your baby gets an eye infection. Oh, is that right? Yeah, breast milk. There you are, you yeah. see? There you are. Uh, just well, shows... it was 20, 18 years ago when I was having my Yeah, baby. but nevertheless, you can mm. see what I mean. So there's lots of fascinating ideas, but I just want to be clear that it is university-trained, rubricated, titled works that I've looked at a lot. Um, for this, to what I'm saying to you now. This is not old wives' tales. Some of these things would become old wives' tales, mm. but in its day, it was considered, oh, right. You see, uh, and, and, and understanding these brilliant people like John Hall, who leap from a step that doesn't exist yeah. and dare to leap, who suddenly say, I'm not sure about this, and there's, that they were looking at minerals being used as well. Paracelsus came on the scene. He was well thought of. Uh, as well, although he was, well, he wasn't well thought of personally. I think he was murdered at the end, frankly, <laughs> having read how he spoke to people and wrote things. I'm not surprised. But he, he really changed the way people thought about things as well. So there's massive amount of work here to be done. Mm. And, and I, if I leap from one thing to another, it's because there is one thing to another to leap to. Yeah. And yeah. these are stepping stones to life we're describing, aren't we? And the woman having to orgasm. And, of course, the woman has a clitoris which is the only organ in the human body that's there purely for pleasure. Mm. But nobody can find it. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the punishment for having a good time, isn't it? So I leave everybody with that thought unless you have any other questions. Because I I'm just wanted to hit on one more, if I may. Just Go ahead. Finish. Because most people, I, I imagine, probably um, their only, uh, or the, the main information they'd get a lot of, about women's health, or especially in terms of birth, would be the Queen's. And I imagine a lot is, well, if you look at the Tudor period, the queens of Henry VIII and whatever. Now, they had, a, as I understand, an exceptionally high mortality rate. Do we know what the mortality rate for sort of children, is, especially? Well, I can certainly talk birth. to you about the first year. We've got those statistics coming in, and that's 20%. In... So the mortality rate for the middling people right. who had... I'll, I'll explain that in more detail because class is something we, seen as, we see as much later as an invention, but we can say middling and know what we mean by that. Uh, people at court, people who are in the army or the navy, people who are merchants, you know, just a bit of common sense will tell you, or farming communities. So, yeah, it's 20%. And the information that I have and my research tells me that the mortality rate for the Tudor queens, particularly, not all queens, is 60%. Mm. We forget that Henry VII had a lot more children than we know. A lot more. And now some people might say, oh, well, that's because of fear of intervention. You know, I'm not going to do a blimey. If the child dies, the woman dies, they're going to get me. If Henry VIII, you'd flipping feel like that wouldn't you, yeah. if it was one of his. But um, there does seem to be, I'm not, I'm not published on this yet, but there does seem to be an influence of not syphilis. I'm not. I'm not accepting that at this point. Not because I don't want to, I just don't, there's enough evidence. Um, that there seems to be a genetic fault with the boys particularly, because a lot of them died young as well. Mm. Um, people, you know, 
or little ones, you know, like Cornwall and what have you, you know. The, these things, you know, you just, oh, another one, Edward VI himself and, you know, a bit of a weakness there. So when I say that, it's not me sitting there thinking, oh, I bet they've got a bit of a weakness, you know. I go to a lot of conferences and I speak to a lot of geneticists and they'll generally say, oh, it looks like it's some sort of fault there. There's some, yeah. some anom anomaly here. That's right. That's not what That's you'd right. expect not even what, at the time. No, what we might call normal. But, mm. of course, tremendous amount of interbreeding going on, which is not helpful. No. Uh, because, you know, this line from John of Gaunt particularly going into Europe and also going into this country as well. Mm. So it's likely to be multifaceted, as it, as is most things. Yeah, <laughs> but it's beautiful course. as well. Sometimes you read, like, those listening to this, you get a chance to read, I think it was Muriel St. Byrne who, did, who translated them over very many years. When you read them, they, they are beautiful. And some of them are terribly funny. Are these what? accounts? What are these? These Sorry. are the letters of the but of the oh. liar letters. I forgive me. I'm jumping back to that again. Um, I know you've got two women writing to each other. Don't forget, keep your eyes open for this particular lady. Uh, make sure your husband doesn't get near her. She's too gorgeous. Watch out for her. Don't forget. And it keeps running on. And then after a while, you realise it's a joke. The woman's obviously terrifying to look at. And it's like a standing joke, you know, between these women. And there's also a very funny letter uh, from somebody thanking one of these very important, I think it was Lord Lyle himself, um, or Norfolk, it might have been Norfolk actually, um, and he's saying, thank you very much indeed for your stone break medicine, because urinary tract stones were a oh, huge problem. Okay. Uh, yes, it's worked very well. In fact, I avoided much gravel, much gravel, mm. and I have pissed the bed, quotes, ever since, and I am pissing the bed so often that my wife do beat me round the head, for she do say it is like sleeping with a child. So thank you very much for this, but it has left me in this state. I mean, when you read it, it's brilliantly funny and, and worth sort of... You think, how insightful. Oh. Sorry? How insightful. Oh, yes, you do beat me round the head like yeah. I be a child. Well, that doesn't sound to me like a, a very high-born man. It doesn't sound to me like everybody was, you know, underfoot. Yeah. I'd like to know more about literacy. You know, it would be lovely to have a proper glimpse at some, but some choke. I mean, Thomas More's, he had a number of children by both marriages and he inherited some. Uh, and Cecily Heron, which, who we most of us have heard of, had a little hospital at the end of her garden in Chelsea. And she was very interested in medicine. Of course, the great Margaret Roper. Both were very bright, very educated. But there were other children who chose not to be in his family. So being more and a remarkable man, um, he didn't force it. Mm. So um, yeah, I think the choice was there for some people. But when you were little, and if your mum and dad said, well, you don't have to go to school again, you can mess about the back garden, you can see what <laughs> a bit tempting, wouldn't it, to mess around in the back garden. But when we get to this age, you know, into maturity of life, and been, if we've been lucky enough to go to university or do whatever you're doing, you do find, oh, it would be so lovely because there's nothing like a letter of the time or a book of hours like Anne Boleyn's. You look at them and the sensitivity of a real human life is there. That's what we've been discussing today. Human life, desire, hope, and sometimes hope above and against all the odds. Mm. But ultimately, we have women and they smile at us from some distance away, but they're still very much our sisters, and you have that feeling when you read them. Mm. That's great. Thank you so much. Very welcome. Thank you, Leslie. Very welcome. To listen to more of Leslie Smith, 
go to patreon.com forward slash British history. Thank you.